Well, here we are in the second week of Advent. Advent, of course, the season of preparation for the coming of the Lord at Christmas. Um, and so many, so much uh, of our reading uh, during this time speaks of this hope and this longing, this expectation that God will come to us, Emmanuel, God with us. But also there's these prophecies like the one in Baruch we, we just heard, um, or even the, the prophecy of Isaiah that's invoked to um, show what John the Baptist was there to do, this voice of one crying out in the wilderness to make straight the paths of the Lord. Those prophecies were about certainly the coming of God's mercy, but they were also about coming home. They were uh, written during the exile, the Babylonian exile, about five or six hundred years before Jesus. When Jerusalem had been destroyed, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled the Jews, the the, um, tribe of Judah, the only remaining tribe, by the way, um, of the Israelites, to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates River, out of their promised land, out of the land of milk and honey, the the land that the uh, slaves in Egypt, the, the Hebrews, had finally settled on after 40 years of wandering, that this displacement, this great tragedy led to a sadness. Like, what, what happened? Our temple is destroyed, our city is destroyed, our, our people are dispersed and exiled, and here we are longing. And that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. It's, it's speaking of not just God coming to our place, you know, what happens at Christmas, but us coming to him, us coming home. And there's also the sense that our exile is self-imposed. It's because of our own sin, because we've turned away from God, um, that this has happened to us, that we're alienated and wandered far from him. Think about Luke chapter 15, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. This is the perfect um, image, if you want, of the coming home of the sinner and the coming to the sinner of the father. That When the prodigal son, if you know the story, he's wasted all of his inheritance He's um, squandered it and is in total poverty and destitution. He decides to go home and he's got this speech prepared that he's going to say to his father, you know, I, I messed up, I sinned, I don't really deserve to be called your son anymore. Just hire me as one of your servants and I, at least I'll have something to eat. And he's about to say this speech and the father runs out to meet him. This father that he's so offended and, and abandoned, the father runs out to meet him and clothes him in this robe and puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and restores him to his dignity and, and invites him to enter the joy of his house. Um, in that we see this meeting of God and human beings, the, the, the father who is merciful and the sinner who needs mercy. That's really Advent and that's joy. That's what we long for. And there's so much in the, in the readings and the prayers at Mass about joy, um, that we are supposed to have joy. Like the reading in Baruch, he says, Jerusalem, take off your robe of mourning and misery. Put on the splendor of glory from God forever. It's just like that prodigal son putting on the robe. You know, take off your rags, your, your robes of mourning, and put on this robe of joy and glory. Um, Nehemiah, when the, when the exiles finally do return, uh, 500 years before Christ, they, rebuild the, they rebuild, rebuild the temple and the walls of the city. And uh, Ezra the priest says to the people, rejoicing in the Lord must be your strength. You have to rejoice. You know, even though there's still all this tragedy, there's still all this sadness, there's still this sense that we are in exile, we have to keep the flame of joy alive. That's what keeps us going towards our promised land. 
Um, and that can be difficult sometimes. I remember a story I, I heard a, a priest give on, when I was on retreat in October about his own father. His father had passed away. And when, he, um, uh, when they read the will, the thing that he, he got was all of these old tapes, these old cassettes. You probably have never heard of a, a camera called a Super 8. It was, I think it was a Kodak camera. That, it was a, uh, an old video camera. It didn't have any audio, though. It would just kind of like click, 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 click. It would take like really fast frames, and you could watch silent videos of your families. And so his dad had taken decades of these Super 8 films, and he had just crates and crates of the tapes, and um, Father Paul got them after his dad died. And he went through the painstaking process over uh, like a year or a year and a half of digitizing them and then cutting them together and, and making kind of the story uh, of, of everything his dad had documented. And one of the things that he, uh, one of the, the images that had stuck into his heart was um, his dad and a bunch of the other fathers kind of led this, they took all these boys on this um, excursion every summer uh, to this camp. And at the camp there was this one of these water slide things where you like get launched off into the, <laughs> into the lake or, you know, there's one of these kind of super dangerous things that they don't let kids do anymore. Um, and he sees that, uh, the camera is fixed right on him. It's him as like an eight year old, this skinny little kid. And he's sliding down this, uh, water slide in his, pa- in panic. And then he just kind of gets like flown off and just splayed out like this, like, uh, with his panicked look in his eyes and splashes into the water. And he sees that the camera is shaking. And he realizes his dad has focused right on him the whole time, followed him down the slide, and then seeing him splash into the water, he just starts laughing uncontrollably, and he can't keep the, the camera steady. And as he watched that, he was filled with joy, he said. Just, you know, even though his dad had died, even though he was in a time of mourning, um, here was this record, here was this um, proof that his father loved him, that his father delighted in him and rejoiced in him. And... He knew that one day he would meet his father again in heaven um, and more importantly, meet the father in heaven, that that image to him was how God looked on him and how much God loved him, uh, that he would delight in him in this kind of funny way, but in, in that way, even more personal than just simply like you at your best. It was you as a kid just having fun and the father delighting in you. He said that that moment stabilizes him, like when he does feel weighed down by his responsibilities as a priest or just the sadnesses of life and that feeling of exile, of not being quite home yet, what we're waiting for in Advent, the final coming of the king and our final arrival into the promised land of heaven, that those moments of joy keep us going. And there's no greater joy than the nearness of the one we love. And that's when you feel the joy at Christmas, you know, of getting together with your family, your close friends, Sometimes the pain of the holidays is, is the fact that you can't be near them or they're not here anymore or because families are broken and there's complicated things. And we long for that nearness of our loved ones to, to be in communion again. But that is what's so beautiful. At the Mass, you can always be in communion, that the Lord has come, um, that Emmanuel, God with us, is already the case at every Mass in the Eucharist. We can be in communion with the Lord and stoke that fire of joy to keep us moving on the road to the promised land.